Good evening from the UAE. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and today on my uh, first In Squash podcast, we had the great pleasure of chatting with uh, Neil Harvey, the legendary squash coach and player. Uh, we covered uh, a number of great topics, including his uh, early days on tour, competing against the likes of Jancher and Jahangir Khan. Uh, we had we discussed the uh, the greatest of all time uh, debate. Uh, Peter Nichols' road to uh, beating Jancher, uh, his great charity work that eventually brought him to uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, and uh, a certain bed and breakfast called the Stella Rose. Enjoy the podcast. If I'm wrong, but I just pulled up. Here's a here's a quiz. Here's a question for you. Tell me your ranking in uh, 1989. In England, uh, the the English rankings just came up on Facebook. Well, I got to, yeah, I actually got to number one in 1987 and 88. 87, 88. Okay. I was on the, yeah, I was on the way down in 89. 89. You were down to what what number? I can't remember off the four. top of my head, but number four. Oh, okay. Not bad. A fellow by the name of Del Harris was ahead of you. That's right, he was, yeah. And uh, yeah, one fellow by the name of Chris Walker nipping at your heels. My best man. Oh, <laughs> at my oh, really? wedding, I'm going to be best, best okay. man at his this summer. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, you know, that, that's great stuff. So you reached uh, number one in England and almost top 10 in the world, number yeah, 12? Yeah, just, just outside the top 10. Yeah, yeah. I got to 12. Okay, that's... My, uh, I guess my... my Looking back on the career, I, I had a really bad groin injury, so I, I struggled to to play five matches in five days to win a big event. Um, but I was able to beat everyone up to number one. The only people I didn't beat was the number one in the world uh, at the time. But I, be, I managed to beat Ross Norman in '87 in the in the World Championships in Birmingham, um, and that got me into the England team. When we played at the Albert Hall in London, which was you know a huge thrill for me because I'd been there for concerts and had been there many times since and always had such a great time so it was you know i guess the english equivalent of you know playing in front of the pyramids absolutely yeah yeah and then uh, 1987 uh, world team championships representing uh, england of course yeah fantastic that was what a great experience that was uh, that was at the albert hall we came close to beating new zealand in the semi-finals um i lost to stuart davenport in the deciding match and he was just a fraction too good for me I was thinking uh, as I was preparing for this the other day, as a, you know, I, I didn't really amount to much in, in squash. Uh, I, I did, I was number one provincially, but uh, beyond that. But I was just thinking as a junior, I always knew your name. And uh, that, I think that's saying a lot just because of the fact that, you know, there was no internet back then. And there, there was a, maybe a, a quarterly publication in Squash Magazine or something. So, uh, yeah, you did. Were uh, you um, were you a junior in sort of the late eighties? Would that have been about your right, timeline? Late, mid to late eighties, yeah, early eighties. Because okay, I came across and I came across and played the Canadian Open, um, three times actually. Yeah, that that would have been uh, probably where I could, where I heard your name, and you might have been on uh, the telly as well because they did televise uh, some of those on uh, CBC or one of the sports. Uh, right. Uh, and who was the the top guy back then that would have been, I guess it would, would have been uh, Jahangir, right? 
It would have been Jahangir. Jahangir was just kind of finishing in the late 80s, uh, although he did go on into the early 90s. But, but Jansha had come on the scene in 86 yeah, at the Worlds in, uh, in Toulouse when Ross Norman actually broke Jahangir's uh, unbeaten run in yeah. the final there. Um, and then Chris Dittmar was around and Rodney Martin. They were the, the kind of the up-and-coming really good guys. Right on. And just to go through again, now, uh, of course, you were a fan, uh, world-class player at the highest level, and then you moved into uh, to coaching, obviously, which is, I think, where many people know you uh, from. Uh, right. Taking Peter Nickel to uh, uh, world number one and uh, having such a fantastic career in partnership with him, um, along with uh, a host of other players, including uh, World Junior Champion Tom Bendy, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Lauren Angel. There's actually a really nice story about um, Bengi. That was yep. his nickname. Um, one of my fellow Englishmen who actually shared a room with me on an under-23 tour to New Zealand back in 1982, Jamie Hickox, who became the performance right. director for um, for Canada Squash Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I roomed with him. His, his parents were going through a divorce and. Uh, you know, I was the I was the England captain at the time and took him under my wing, and we became very very firm friends you know, ever since that day. So uh, he was then um, the Malaysian national coach for a period of time, and when he quit, he wanted Benghi to come uh, to a good kind of uh, good group set up, and so he recommended that Benghi came to me with uh, with Peter. Right on, and uh, he did he did wonders for that program, didn't he? In Malaysia, I mean, he brought. Uh, he did. He really, he really put the uh, the groundwork in for those guys. I mean, they're having a lot of success since then. Mohammed um, Aslan Kandar came and and stayed with us as well. The boys had the flat next to me, which they rented out and were part of the Connaught group. Um, and there was a lovely story actually when when Bengi won the worlds in '99. Um, he beat Walel Hindi in the final, I think it was. Okay. Uh, he, um, his father was due to fly back direct to Malaysia, but he stopped in London to come and uh, congratulate me and gave me a, a beautiful pewter mug, a beer oh, mug, wow. to say, say thank you for his, uh, his son's success. So it was a lovely, touching moment. He just, he just showed up at the Squash Club at Cannons in London and, uh, and presented me with that, which was wonderful. Yeah, I had the opportunity to, uh, to meet Bang He and... Um in Korea when I think he won the gold medal at the uh, Asian Games. Uh, he did, that's right. And that's a huge thing for the Malaysians. Oh, absolutely. You know, to beat the Pakistanis and the guys from Hong Kong is, is uh, probably even more important than getting into the top 10 in the world for those guys. Yeah. I, I, I remember in particular the match, uh, I think it was the, the semi-final, uh, he played against Shahid uh, Zaman. Yeah. I, and, yeah. I mean, that guy's just shooting for winners the whole from everywhere. Yeah, Bengi was a very intelligent squash player yeah, on the yeah. on the tactical side. You know, he was able to. He was one of the few young guys that bought into the idea of changing the pace of the game. You know, he yeah. could control the ball down the down the sidewall uh, with great accuracy. And and when you hit slowly, it's actually a very difficult thing to do, which is why a lot of people don't do it. But if you do it well, then it gives you great results, and uh, you get you, your reward pretty much uh, straight away. And he was he was very good at that. Yeah, he, he played very well uh, that week. And uh, then you, uh, you also, you've also coached some, some of the ladies as well. Uh, Nicolette yep. Fernandez. Um, where is she from? Yep. Uh, French Guyana. French Guyana, okay. 
And uh, yeah. ha, uh, any other uh, females on the tour that you've... Uh, well, I guess worked? my biggest success, because she was with me for a long period of time, was Linda Charman. Okay, yeah. Now El, now El Riani, because she married Laurent. Um, she was ranked 17 in the world at the time, and we were in Egypt. And um, she, she said to me, would I kind of uh, start working with her? And she was living down south, somewhere like Brighton. And she would come up, you know, two or three times a week, drive up an hour and a half and, and do the sessions with us. And uh, we managed to get Linda to two in the world. And oh, she also wow. won a world teams with England. And then Cassie Jackman. Um, yeah, I remember at her. The time, yeah, she was really good. Um, yeah. And she came up for a period of time and, and just we were able to give her that little mental edge and confidence. And she won a world championship. And then um, Vanessa Atkinson came and stayed because she was dating... Lawrence Angema at the right. time, yeah, which is yeah. kind of funny because he used to be his babysitter, would you believe? <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that's really funny. And um, you know, during her her t the tenure with me, she she actually won a world championship as well. Okay, okay, and then uh, I guess you decided to move. Now I'm not sure exactly when, but you moved to uh, Canada, uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, and you were involved in, uh, you've always been involved involved in uh, charity uh, work. Is that yeah. accurate? That's, a, that's correct. Yeah, I actually moved, um, not for squash. Um, I moved for, for the charity work, actually. Um, the, my boss at the time, or the guy that was organizing it, was a guy called Gary Oliver. And when I was badly injured in Spain back in the uh, mid-80s, um, he came out to see me because I'd been flying back to play once a week just to put my toe back in the water to see if I could play again. And he sponsored me to come back to the UK. Yeah. And then in, uh, I think it was early 2004, he contacted me. Actually, it was, it was the British Open just before that. He came up and saw me and said, look, I live in Poland now with my, uh, with my Polish partner, Camilla Rubicka, who mm -hmm. is a fantastic businesswoman. She was business woman of the year in Poland one year. Oh, wow. um, and they had a couple of kids wow. write to them uh, to ask for a terminal wish. And the wish was to go to London and also to mi to visit Liverpool and meet uh, the goalkeeper there, the Polish goalkeeper, Jerzy Dudek. Okay. And um, he couldn't do the wish. He said, would I, would I organize it for him? Because he obviously trusted me implicitly. And I was able to all organize this amazing wish uh, for these two kids. Um, Carolina had a brain tumor. Oh, Martin had uh, muscular dystrophy. He was in a wheelchair. And w when when we do the big wishes, and this is what I learned, and I, I did this from the start, we, we gave them lots of other little wishes um, in between time. So Martin had never been in a fast car, so my pal had a Ferrari, so he's racing up and down the River Thames huh. in this beautiful blue Ferrari. And uh, she loved animals, so we took her to see the... Uh, uh, to see the... Uh, the dogs, uh, the police dogs training up in Liverpool when we got there. And the people of Liverpool were amazing with these kids. And then we spent the day with the players up at uh, Anfield. And then so Jersey the came and had dinner. in uh, in uh, uh, getting involved in charity work and then uh, yeah, yeah. The, grow I mean, it, the, the reason I tell this story is because uh, that night Jersey actually rang up and said his wife was out of town. Could he come and have dinner with the children, which was a huge effort. And um, Carolina actually died in my arms that night. She she confessed oh, that she survived just for this wish. And of course, um, off the back of that, Poland's Newsweek a magazine gave us a, a huge spread on her hopes and her dreams and how she'd actually um, 
you know, hung on for this wish. And she, she lost the use of her facial muscles, so she would actually use her hand to make herself smile when she was happy. Okay. And uh, off the back of that, the, uh, they got so many letters that they decided to pack it all in. Uh, Gary had lived in Canada. You might know him from uh, the Curzons Club, you know, on, uh, yeah. outside the airport in, right. um, in Toronto. So he ran that club for many years. Yeah, the name, his name rings a bell, that's for sure. But that's a guy that's called Brent Meredith. Experience would put, a, you know, puts everything into perspective for you, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, and that's that's why I kind of mentioned that story because I've always been able to uh, get some of my squash players to do a lot of charity work. I always make them give back, and it was just a unique sort of circumstance that I happened to to be able to do this, and it was a very fulfilling part of my life. Um, probably what, way more uh, important. what sort of uh, work were you doing with uh, the charity in uh, Halifax or in Nova Scotia? So we started a program called Journey for a Lifetime mm -hmm. and uh, we sent healthy Canadian teenagers across to grant the wishes for the terminal children. So they would go into these tiny little apartments and build a bedroom or set up a TV or a, you know, a, a computer. And the, the, the wishes were very kind of low key. They wanted a a cell phone or a computer just so because they spend a lot of time in hospital they can stay in touch with people right and then the big wishes which would be probably once every six weeks i'd be in charge of the big wishes and you know kid wants to go and swim with dolphins or visit disney um we met michael schumacher at the german grand prix oh, wow. um zin, zin zidane we met and david beckham in, in real madrid and uh you know these these guys zidane was an incredible human being we were outside the stadium at the Bernabeu and uh, I'd lived in Madrid for a couple of years. So I was able to access that particular wish through all my contacts yeah. and uh, the, the lift, the elevator had broken up to the players lounge after the match. So these poor kids were both in wheelchairs were, were stuck outside in the freezing cold and literally all the players came and did a quick picture with them. But Zidane stayed for 45 minutes. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah. Yeah. When what I told the, him a, um, what, what had happened to the kids and he had no idea he was meeting some terminal Ill children and he turned away with a, with a tear in his eye oh, and wow. he turned back and uh, just made, made such a fuss with these kids. It was awesome. Wow. Oh, and what is, again, what is the name of the charity, the foundation again? I, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, it, it's a Polish foundation. Mm -hmm. It's a Fundacja. It's Fundacja. The Polish foundation, yeah. Okay. But you know, Gary's still doing this up in Toronto. We we made a mistake. We came to Halifax when we should have actually been in a big city. Right. It just wasn't enough. Um, kids from here with kind of that that outlook. It's very parochial in Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah. Um, very yeah. insular. Very few people have passports, and so it was. The, the parents are very clingy to their children, so it was it was a difficult program to promote here. Right. And uh, Gary did a, a big concert, which I, I didn't know he was doing till I got here. And he invested quite a bit of money, of his own money, in, in um, Paul Anker. And the oh, concert flopped, okay. unfortunately. So that's how I got back into squash. Um, LJ rang me up, Lawrence Angema rang me up and said, I'm coming to Halifax. I said, why, why are you coming to Halifax? He said, there's a squash tournament, the Blue Nose Squash Classic. Right. Can I stay with him? Will he coach me? Anyway, I coached him, and he, and he won the tournament that year. So I was introduced to pretty much everyone straight away. Straight away, okay. How long were you in uh, Halifax before you sort of met with the, the squash community there? I arrived in September, Yeah. and um, my wife 
finally came out in November. We bought a house, and the tournament was in February. Okay. So literally five months. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's where I met Matt, and Matt Matt obviously gave me because uh, he knows about squash. He gave me a really good introduction to the absolutely to the crowd, and I ended up doing quite a bit of commentary and uh, and interviews with players because obviously I knew all the players. Well, uh, I mean, I've been obviously I've been following it since the since its uh, inception uh, quite keenly, and uh, uh, I noticed you there doing a lot of the, the color, not color commentary, but the post-match interviews and things like that after. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's great. Um, but let me uh, get into a few few things here. I, I just noticed there the other day, Nova Scotia finished uh, fifth, their national uh, masters team, uh, uh, when they, they went to Moncton, I guess it would have been last weekend. That's right. Yeah, did you, yeah. Uh, were you involved in the, any team preparations uh, for that? No, there was really a in there, um, but I haven't been there since they've got the new courts in. Okay. Um, uh, I did some commentary with... Uh, yeah, it, seem, it seems to be quite sizable, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it's really good, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's probably, uh, you know, it could easily be the centre of, of excellence for the Atlantic provinces if, you know, if they were able to organise that. Is that something you think could happen, or? I think it's something that should happen, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with, with, with the geography of Canada um, making it very difficult to have, um, you know, cohesion between all the provinces. Um, there's a lot of travel, obviously, for people, but but certainly, you know, from uh, Toronto and Montreal and uh, Quebec, you know, that could easily be accessible uh, as a center of excellence for people. Yeah, I think there, there's a little, there's some talent there at the, the junior level as well. One, I forget her name, maybe, uh, from Prince Edward Island. She won under 19 uh, nationals last year. Is that right? Yeah, she, uh, it's Emma Jing. She, she's actually won the under 15s, under 17s, and the under 19. Okay. And I, I, I coach her um, okay. yeah. for, for periods of time with, with Connor. So Connor, her brother, he's now studying... Um, uh, medicine. Well, he's, he's doing a degree at Dow with a view to going into medicine. Okay. Um, he he actually won the under 19s when she won the under 17s. Oh, and really? it was great because it was on a it was on a live stream, and I was able to to phone through the instructions uh, uh, um, in the break between the games. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, that's yeah, it's cool. Uh, it's really cool. You see a lot of uh, players on you know on the PSA tour even now uh, on the phone between games. So uh, yeah, like, uh, Emma's Emma's really talented. Um, she's incredibly tenacious. She's got a really good squash brain. Um, she moves incredibly well and is in, is very athletic. She gets balls back that lots of the girls wouldn't get back. And um, she, I'm just trying to set her up with uh, with the top university in the states to get a part scholarship to go down there. Going to go for a scholarship uh, in the U.S. Is she? Yeah, there's two or three of my pals have been in touch with me, asking me exactly what she's like and how she would fit into the program. So, you know, I've got high hopes for her to, to go down there. We've had a few kids go um, and, and get good uh, good universities because of the squash, actually, since since I've been here in Nova Scotia. Right. The one thing I've been able to do, Jerry, is to is to kind of raise the expectation level. Have a career. Um, what was it like in the 80s, like real, compared to uh, what it's like today uh, as, a, as a pro on the tour? Well, we, we came through the change from the, the high tin to the low tin and the change of scoring. Yeah. Um, 
where you were hand in, you had to be hand in to be able to score a point. And, and that really changed the whole face of the game. The game became so much more uh, attacking and aggressive. Right. I remember sitting in a meeting, which was um, the equivalent. And I remember sitting in a meeting because Kumar Zaman was the world number two. And in any other era, he probably would have been number one, but there was always a, a top player above him. And when we lowered the tin to 17 inches, I remember him putting his hand up and he never used to say anything. And he put his hand up and he said, if you take away the tin, I won't retire. Because <laughs> he was so accurate on the, you know, on the low tin. He, he thought he, he was prolong his career with no tin at all. <laughs> he, he was a shot maker. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he was wonderful. Yeah. Though there were quite a few great. Uh, yeah, he was, he was probably, he was probably the only guy I would have paid money to go and watch. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So Zaman would would have this cheeky little smile. So you know you get a point if you hit the person in front of you and the ball's going to the front wall. Whenever yeah. the opportunity presented itself, he would just chip the ball into the middle of your back, and so you couldn't get annoyed because it didn't hurt at all. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. he'd just smile at the referee and smile at you, and you just knew you'd been had by him. <laughs> um, now here's a question because I, I know you've uh, you've probably played both uh, Jahangir and Jancher. The, the $64 million question, uh, who's the greatest of all time? Okay, so Jahangir was really hard to play and really hard to beat because the yeah. pace was so ferocious. Yeah, yeah. Jansha was slightly easier to play, but equally as hard to beat. Yeah. And it's very difficult to, to kind of uh, make comparisons across the, across the years. I've also played Jeff Hunt and I played Jonah Barrington. Right. And e each of them had the same quality they could they could adapt to the conditions they could adapt to the change in style and game and impose their own kind of regime um Jahangir's record speaks for itself yeah. but i think the transformation onto the low tin with Jansha Jansha was actually a fairly average squash player to start with but such a great athlete but yeah. then when he learned the game he became a great squash player yeah um, this deft really deft touch from everywhere Yep. Well, and I think Jahangir had a game that, that you know, worked for yeah. him on the courts that we were playing on. Yeah. Um, whereas Jahangir was also able to absorb so much pressure yeah. and then was, was lethal on the counter-attack. Jahangir yeah. chose not to attack uh, as much because that, that game actually worked. And he played a lot of his squash on the uh, uh, scoring system to nine. So, you know, he could be a bit more aggressive when he was serving and a bit more conservative when he wasn't serving. I think he'd figured that out as well, you know. Did you uh, did you ever have any uh, close uh, matches with either of them? Uh, I would imagine you. Well, I like to I'd like to think um, they were really troubled by me, but they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> That's an honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> I play. I was lucky enough to play Jahangir only in exhibition matches, um, but I played Jansha three times, yeah. and I was I always did well, but you know didn't didn't score a lot of. Well, I scored a, a few points against him, but I was just love. I loved watching him. Just he he would volley with these very soft hands, you know. But uh, he'd he'd have the service return on the backhand. He'd just sit there in the service box and then hit a, a straight volley drop to the back. Well, and and it's interesting you mentioned that shot because that's a shot I demonstrate. And I I do an impression of Jansha only in my mind to show my students and yeah. whenever I do it my way I hit an okay shot a pretty good shot but when I demonstrate it as Jan she would play it 
the ball is always feathered into the neck, which is it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely man. incredible. And there was a there was a kid from Argentina, Diego de la Bella. He came and stayed with us for for about a year, and he did these great impressions of these squash players' favorite shots. And one of them was Jansen's backhand volley drop. So when he played as himself, he was not a very good squash player, but if he played it like Jansha, he always hit a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's good. That's good stuff. Uh, no, I, I agree that it's tough to choose uh, the greatest, especially uh, you having seen them all. Um, but uh, yeah, those two guys were fantastic. Now, moving on to uh, you know Pete, your your partnership with Peter, uh, I. I grew up, not grew up, but uh, while I was in Korea, it was in the mid-90s, and uh, we had access to Star Sports, and things were starting to go on the internet. So I, I followed that, the beginning of that, uh, I would call it a rivalry between him and uh, Jonathan Power. Would you, uh, would you say there was a rivalry there? Yeah, I mean, it's been likened to the Bull McEnroe um, partnership in, in tennis. You know, you've got the bad boy in the clean cut. Um, sponsors dream, you know, hardworking, yeah. all, all the right sort of attributes against the magician, pretty much, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now Peter sort of came onto the scene a few years before Jonathan, didn't he? Because he had a he had a couple of big wins over Jancher towards uh, towards the end of Jancher's career, did, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he played the longest final in, in British Open history with Jansha down at the, the, the Leaks uh, British Open in 96, I think that was. Okay. And then uh, they pretty much carried Jansha off. I mean, he was peeing, peeing blood, uh, really? according to his aides afterwards. Yeah. It was about two hours and 12 minutes. And that pretty much, I, I knew from that moment onwards that, that Peter wouldn't lose to him again. So very quickly after the British Open, I arranged an exhibition match, which I did a winner-take-all, and Pete played Jansha and bid him uh, 10-8, uh, sorry, 15-8 in the, in the fourth. In the fourth. Okay. Sorry, 15-14 in the fourth, and, and beat him there. And then he beat him in front of the pyramids to win the Alaram uh, Open at the time. And, you know, that well, was you pretty might, much... You must have... Uh, I mean, you obviously you saw this as an opportunity... Uh, uh, for Peter, how did you? Uh, what was your plan before you had uh, before Peter had actually got his first win against him? How did did you have a plan? Uh, or you must have. Yeah. So the first um, kind of person to to get past was Rodney Isles, who was right. firmly entrenched fantastic, at number yeah. two in the world and was a fantastic shot player and yeah. you know such a tough competitor. Um, you know, proper Australian sportsman. Yeah. Um, Hard enough. Beat the crap out of you, the crap out of you on court, and then shake your hand and have a beer with you afterwards. He was a, you know, quintessential Australian. He was, he was awesome. Yeah. Uh, he's a good, good pal of mine as well. Um, we both like to sing Elvis, so we, we would <laughs> go to a bar and sing Elvis together. Um, he, he rang me up once when we were in the TOC and said, "You got to get your ass down here, halves, to uh, a place called Rosie's Turn." And Terry White, who was playing the jailer in, uh, in, um, I was the running. Um, can't remember the movie. Anyway, she, she's the big black jailer, and she was going through a divorce at the time. Rodney's pumping some Jack Daniels and Coke down her throat, and he said she's going to sing in a minute. And it was a bar where all the Broadway celebrities would go after after the show, and yeah. I arrived just in time to see her 
sing four unbelievably powerful songs, which is which uh-huh. is hilarious. And the reason I mentioned that because Rodney, you know, Rodney was very uh, firm but fair. So he, he knew if you beat Rodney, you were you're going to be close to Jansha. He got close to Jansha a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And we watched a lot of videos to see how he did that. Um, and one of the biggest problems with Jansha as he as he got older, you know, he didn't clear the ball particularly well. Yeah, and so Pete and I devised kind of a movement pattern to get round Jansha um, and still play the ball because, you know, he would he would make it very difficult for you to get to the ball balanced um, when he was on the attack. So, you know, you'd end off, off, off balance and doing even more work. So, you know, I'd set up lots of drills where I was basically in the way while I was feeding Pete and he had to go around me in a bigger arc and, you know, oh. arrive at the ball uh, in is a balanced that, position. Um, so, is that sort of uh, anything to do with the, the 120? Uh... It was to do with the 120. Yeah, Joe Shaw taught me that when I was a player. And um, the step pattern, although it's you know not necessarily uh, great nowadays, it, it got you from A to B, uh, and then you could improvise way better based on those on those steps. Um, and the the also it, it helps you to arrive at the ball slightly side onto the sidewall, so it, it makes it easier to keep the ball tight and straight. Yeah, that's what I noticed in Peter's movement, not having uh, known at the time. Uh, about the, you know, the the value of the 120, but you meant you, yep. you mentioned that you, you might not think it's applicable to today. Um, why? Well, I think the game's become so much more explosive. Yeah. You know, I think I think you've got to, um, you know, you've got to change your ghosting patterns to to suit the, you know, the nature of the game today, and that's that's what players are doing now. I mean, um, when when I worked with LJ, he worked a lot with Damon Brown, who was the English guy. Um, who did a lot of the fitness training and you know they devised a lot of movement patterns that uh, that would be applicable so if you break the court down into uh, you know four four corners or even six six areas of the court yeah. um, there's certain percentages of, of the movements that you have to do to certain corners and you know we, we would look at that and and tailor our ghosting to, to towards that right right okay and here's a good stat for you Jonathan Powers best area of the court in terms of hitting winners was the front right corner front right it was also it was also his weakest area on statistics why would why why do you think that is his strength well because for example if he's playing let's suppose in his rivalry with pete so we did that with jensher obviously with the movement um with peter and jonathan was more tactical so if pete was in charge of the rally he could safely put the ball on his backhand drop because he's left-handed into into Powers' right hand uh, forehand front corner, yeah. um, and Pete could control the rally from there. But if Jonathan was on the attack, then the coaching kind of tactic was to get it away from that corner uh, and play a lob up high to Jonathan's backhand yeah. and get it away. And that's so, you know, was, sorry, it, it was that it was that detail. I mean, we had access to a lot of video from. Uh, Stafford Murray in the UK and you know we'd watch these patterns and, and see how they developed yeah well, that was one thing I noticed in uh, in Peter's game particularly uh, well against a lot of the guys he just used the lob so well he used the front wall so well uh, well it's funny because Jonah's quote years ago was the the, the, um, the area above the red line the middle red line is for the ladies and the bit below is for the guys <laughs> Yeah. Which I thought was which I thought was hilarious, and um, you know Pete was probably the first kind of modern day player um, to use the lob. 
Chris Dittmar played in my team at Cannons, and he would run out of steam against Jansha because he would attack him, attack him, attack him, and you know have to do a lot of work covering. And I, I had a conversation with Ditts one day, and he's he's pretty stubborn uh, Australian yeah. kind of character, and didn't he didn't obviously rate me as a player or whatever as a tactician. And I said, Ditts, you know, why don't you just play a few more lobs and you know keep the attack away from you and, and yeah, give yeah. yourself a bit of breathing space? And and Pete bought into that you know, 100%. And he's been able to help um, both James Wilstrop and uh, Nick Matthew. I know he did a lot of work uh, post-career and I'm sure the lob has kept Nick, you know, helped oh, him to stay at the top of the game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those guys uh, both use the lob well and uh, move really well. Um, yeah. Now you've answered my question about Jancher there. Um, but just go, going back, just for a second, going back to Peter, he's... Um, He's obviously started up uh, with uh, the help of a few of his friends, uh, the Squash Skills uh, website, which I think has uh, really added some value to, uh, to coaching. It, it sort of seems to me it's, it, it's a lot. He's taken a page out of the, the way golf does uh, their, their coaching with, with different people, with really analyzing different um, the different areas of each shot or each technique or each t the, the fitness training he's, and they're doing a great job with that. What, what's your uh, uh, impression of uh, squash skills? That, that website? Well, he, he, the first thing is Pete knows what he's talking about. Absolutely. You know, when he, when he speaks, he, he's speaking with uh, such authority. I mean, he was, he was at number one in the world for 62 months and his, his and my kind of philosophy was, we're going to make you the best. He wants to become the best player he can possibly become. Um, and he hasn't stopped learning since he's finished his career. And, and I think it's quite therapeutic to, to be able to do those things in detail and present those shots in detail yes. um, because I think it makes you a better coach. So I, I'm sure there's a bit of bit of that in there that, that actually to be able to communicate that to people gives you gives you as a person a greater understanding of, how to execute the shot and, yeah, and why you would use it. Well, because the, the whole team that he has uh, assembled, um, I, I think it's him who's assembled everybody there. Uh, I get that same vibe from from most of the, the squash skills guys. Well, exactly. And, and you know, as, as coaches, um, for them to be able to demonstrate it and to, to talk about it, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, me just talking to you now, I'm, I'm already thinking through these things in my head as to, you know, how to communicate them best to help help the students. And I think, you know, Pete, Pete's uh, a very philosophical guy in that way. He, you know, he obviously has to make a living, and and uh, hopefully he's making a really good living out of uh, yeah. out of squash after after his career, and, and rightly so. But but to be able to pass on that knowledge, and and we always had the theory that you know what I don't know, we'll we'll find someone that does, and we had this amazing support team in the early years at Cannons through the sort of early 90s when he first got started. And one guy that really helped me was a guy called Ron Clark. He was the great Australian runner from the 60s. Okay. And, uh, you know, he, he talked about, you know, high-quality training with greater intensity rather than, you know, that huge volume that Jonah and Jeff Hunt and those boys used to do, Hanger used to do. Murder so he really well, that was Jonah's book, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and 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 Ron was was able to sort of say you don't need to do twenty four sets of four hundred, 
you know, do 12 of them, but in, but in a faster time with a shorter rest. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's not rocket science, but it certainly helped um, my, my training with Peter. And we, you know, we had access to doctors and, uh, and, and nutritionists and everything else. And, you know, it really was a team effort to, to get him up to the top. Yeah, I've, uh, in fact, I did today one of their uh, circuit uh, training programs. It was quick, but it was uh, efficient. Uh, it was efficient, and it did the job. Uh, it certainly wasn't 24 sets of 400s. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, that was kind of the old ways. It was, yeah. or, it was, or 100 quad sprints. Yeah. Well, David Palmer used to do 300 in 15 minutes as a bit of a, a, bit of a test, and you know, he had a, a, a wonderful career, and, Oh, was yeah. known as the Marine for for that kind of training, you know. He was no, that was his name on tour, the Marine. The Marine, they, uh, yeah, they that's, the Marine that's Palmer, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's pretty uh, cool, actually, isn't it? Yeah, that's very cool. Um, well, Neil, uh, now let's just. Uh, I know you've got this bed and breakfast uh, set up. Where exactly is it? I want you to want to give you a chance to plug it here. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's just down the down the road from Acadia University in Wolfville, which okay. is in the Annapolis in the Annapolis Valley. It's yeah. called the Stella Rose. The um, Stella we took Rose. it over. Yeah. Stella, as in the beer, Stella Artois, and Rose, as in the English Rose. Great. And it's actually named after the previous owner's mums. Oh. So we didn't we didn't change it because my mum's name is Barb and and Robin's mum's name's Jilly. So the Jilly Barb doesn't have the same ring to the, <laughs> as the Stella Rose. <laughs> yeah. And uh, according to uh, I read uh, Matt's uh, testimonial, uh, uh, you like to uh, to cook. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the premise of the B and B is you know when you come to our place, I always call my my houses casas albertas, open houses. <laughs> so anyone's welcome. Um, we, we're still in the same kind of uh, kind of coaching, but with uh, with some parents of the kids that come to Acadia, and we always invite the kids for breakfast to make them feel like there's a second home here if uh, you know if they need us or or want some help or whatever. Is there a facility the uh, nearby there? There is in Ken, in Kenville, it's the Kings Club. Uh, mm -hmm. Janet McLeod, one of yeah. our coaches, she runs that program there. I've got a kid here in the valley. His name's Douglas, and he's got a really long surname. Uh, it's Polish, so I won't uh, pronounce it, but we call him Douglas K10 because it begins with K and it's got ten letters. So we call <laughs> him Douglas K10. It's kind of funny. He's um he's been injured unfortunately, but he he was top six in the under 17. So we've got you know we've had some juniors that have got really good national rankings as well from Nova Scotia, which I'm I'm really thrilled with. That's great. That's great. Uh, back, in, back when I was a junior representing uh, uh, Nova Scotia, we were lucky to win a match. So uh, uh, we exactly improvements. Well, I remember the first time Chris Petropoulos I took um, a group out to uh, to nationals, and uh, I remember his wife saying, "Yeah, well, you know, we finally won a match at nationals, which you know was unheard of too." Yeah. until recently and, and now we've got kids who are actually winning national titles which you know just by opening their eyes up and getting them to believe that, in themselves that's really all you need so, i mean if you if you can win a match or two doesn't that uh give you that gives you the impetus to go back home and work harder and you know you can see you can beat these guys uh, that's right and you, you know you don't see a lot of squash here in nova scotia top class squash that's why the blue nose has been quite inspirational because if you look at the you look at the court usage for two months after the blue nose everyone's practicing trying to emulate the the top players you know 
<laughs> and that, that's a bit unfortunate. I was going to ask you about that. Um, it, it's no longer, uh, at least as of uh, this year. Um, is there any chance of it uh, returning? Have you heard, or is that is that it? Well, I'm pretty instrumental in in kind of running it. In the last couple of years, I I, I ran it pretty much uh, with the help of my volunteers, and it really just comes down to a question of the money. I mean, we're yeah. we're already 25% in the hole because we pay out in US dollars. Right. Um, you know, the, uni the university has been helpful, but you know, we still pay them a bit. And the expenses are just uh, the expenses are just very high. It makes right. it very difficult to run a decent event. Um, by decent, I mean you've got to have a thirty to forty thousand dollar event. The the people here who sponsor it are, have been a bit spoiled over the years because we've had the best players in the world here. Yeah. And uh, you know, to drop down to a fifteen or a twenty, it, it's not got the same kind of feel. So in some ways, it's better not to do it than to do it uh, at the lower level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it was great. So, while certainly, it lasted. So, certainly, everyone misses it. There's no yeah. question of that. We had some. There were some prolific uh, winners there. Lin Ku, I think he won. Thierry yeah. won it, and uh, uh, one of the Ashur, not not Rami Hisham, I think he uh, he may not have Hisham. won to the final. He played. No, he got the final. Aslan, right? Aslan won it. Yeah, which was yeah. great. It was a great thrill for me. Um, uh, to see him come through he, that he, career he and then. An appearance there and won it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so Palmer's won it, LJ's won it, uh, Thierry's won it twice, Pete Barker. Pete Barker? Uh, our, be our best final was certainly Thierry against Daryl Selby on the oh, stage yeah. at the Rebecca Cohen. It was fabulous. He's a, he's a player that, you know, I, I, I really uh, respect a lot is uh, Thierry Linku. He kind of, uh, early on when he was battling with Peter and uh, Jonathan, he struggled a, a little bit, uh, but he hung in there and uh, made a really good run of it. Uh, uh, taking the world number one ranking, didn't he? Well, he did, and you know, the the French are incredibly talented and lots of flair in their sports, as you yeah. know. Um, yeah. But Thierry is probably the first squash player that kind of uh, worked like a like a workhorse and did all the required work to, you know, to put in the groundwork to get to that base. And you Very know, he, he actually, player, I think Peter Peter Nicol actually went to the reunion islands and played a little exhibition match years ago and. Thierry said, you know, I always used to look up to Pete like, like my idol. And he did a, a lovely clinic for our kids here and really shared everything. He learned to play squash by fax. I don't know whether you knew that. Sure. Okay. But, uh, his, by fax. His coach came on holiday from Paris yeah. and ended up uh, at the Reunion Islands. And he would fax him through the drills. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of cool, eh? Yeah. Well, um, again, uh, Neil, the, the name of your bed and breakfast is the uh, Stella Rose. It's located in uh, beautiful Wolfville, Nova Scotia. I've been there many a time. Um, yeah. Acadia University actually used to have inter no, North American courts, really old squash courts. I'm not sure if they're still there. Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, uh, they're in the dungeon. Near, near the, uh, the, the football pitch. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so just one more thing with the bre with the breakfast. Sure. If you if you come to the Stella Rose B and B, the cook will cook you anything you want because you're uh, you're his guest. So well, whatever whatever takes your fancy. We don't cook to a menu. We cook to whatever takes your fancy. My uh, my daughter's graduating from high school. She's in Halifax now, and my wife and my other daughter are here with me in the, in the UAE. We'll be 
there in the summer. So I'm definitely uh, going to be uh, paying Stella Rose a visit uh, maybe for a couple of days uh, over the summer if you're around. Uh, I know you do. Just a little word of advice. We, we get so booked up July and August and September. Okay. Book it early because otherwise you won't get in. Okay, I will. I'll book it early for sure. And if I want Thanks, to work, Gary. what do I have to do? Just go on the Stella Rose uh, website. Stella Rose website. StellaRose.ca? Yeah. Okay. Just put B&Bs in Wolfville. It'll, it'll come up. Okay. Well, Neil, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, you're a legend. And uh, thank you for doing the, uh, the podcast. And all the best. Yeah, how are, you, how are you presenting this, Jerry? Where, where, where's it, gonna go well, and this is going to go? Very soon on iTunes, if I'm lucky. Right. And uh, I'm also going to, I have my own website, so I'll be putting it on the website uh, shortly. I've got a, I work at a university, so the, the tech, the IT guys are going to help me with that. Uh, this will be the right. one. So um, I'll let you know as soon as it's ready. Uh, uh, it'll be up on Facebook, and I'll share it uh, through there. And yeah, and I'll, I'll share yeah, it with all that, all our people here as well for you. Okay, that'd be great, Neil. Uh, thank yeah. you very much. No, thanks, Jerry. I really appreciate it. It was yeah. lovely. That was I look, look forward to meeting you and giving you giving you a hit on the court, mate. Please, that'd be great. Uh, or or on the golf yeah. course. <laughs> or the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> We can drink beer while driving around. How's that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Holland's good at that. Matt Holland's an expert. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Neil. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much, Jerry. Thanks a lot. All the best. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.